Today we're going to jump back into 1 Peter and begin to see what Peter has to say to his church, that uh, the, the exiles that he's writing to. The title of the sermon today is Love, Earnestly Love One Another, taken from verse number 22. We're just going to jump right into 1 Peter by way of reminder that you need to remember that Peter is writing to exiles. Remember that? The elect exiles is what he calls them. They are exiled spiritually. They're exiled physically. They're exiled socially. They're, they're not permanent citizens of this world. And they're feeling the pressure of being unlike the, the rest of the world. They're feeling the social pressure. They're, they're quickly becoming marginalized. And, and as a result, if, if you don't have an internal mindset, you can tend to get discouraged during times like this, can't you? Uh, everybody, we're, God made us to be social. God made us to depend upon one another. And so therefore, the, Peter writes these congregations and reminds them of their great salvation, the, the hope that we have in eternity. And this salvation is awe-inspiring. It, it's so awe-inspiring that he went on to say that the, the prophets, they were writing about this future salvation, wondering what it was, and the angels. And to me, this is interesting, and, and I can't wrap my mind around The very angels who are around the throne of heaven, they have free access to heaven anytime. They're searching scriptures trying to figure out this great salvation that the Old Testament prophets wrote about. And Peter's trying to tell them, this is what you're in the middle of. And and dear Christian, can I say, this is what you're in the middle of right now. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are possessing this great salvation that even the angels that get to see God face to face with spiritual eyes are wondering and asking and searching about. And because of the salvation, Peter went on to say that we believers need to have a certain response. And he says, first of all, we need to hopefully wait for the coming of Jesus Christ. We need to live a, a holy life. We, we need to have reverent fear of God. And today, the, third, the fourth response that he said that we need to have is that we need to earnestly love one another. Now, I will say this. This congregation is one of the most loving congregations I've ever experienced in my life. It's wonderful being here. And you're loving. Now, I realize that not all of us are loving to the same degree as others of us. And not all of us are as easy to love as others as well. But this is a very loving congregation. But in this world, no matter how well we excel at something that God wants to to do, we can always do better. Isn't that true? How many of you had those kind of parents, right? No matter how well you did, well, you can do better. Uh, people tended to hate those kind of teachers that would say, well, you can do better. They never compliment or whatever else. But, um, but we can always do better. Now, there's a common story told about Andrew Jackson. This is before he became the seventh president of the United States. It was during the, the War of 1812. He was commander of the Tennessee Militia. And his troops reached an all-time low in their morale. A critical spirit welled up in them. They began complaining. The complaining led to arguing and bickering. And they were fighting amongst themselves. And Andrew Jackson, it's reported, called them all together and had a, had a meeting with them when the tensions were really high. And he said this. He said, gentlemen, 
let's remember that the enemy is over there. Right? We have to remember that too. As congregation members, we have expectations of other people. Can I, can I just tell you this? Everybody's going to disappoint at one point or another. I'm going to disappoint. You're going to disappoint me. It's just the way it works. We have all these different preferences. Music preferences. Teaching preferences. This is what I would like to see in a perfect church. And and if you focus on the wrong things, that can become a problem. And so what we need to do, as Peter called us to do, is to earnestly love one another. And this story about Andrew Jackson is a sobering reminder for the church today. Verse 22 contains the command... If, if you uh, know a little bit about the original languages, the, the main points of a lot of these New Testament passages are laid out in commands. And, and the first command that we're going to read today is love one another earnestly. That's the command. And, and our response to our salvation is that we're to love one another to what extent? What does that word earnestly mean? When we think of the word earnest, what do we think of? We think, oh, he's really sincere, right? Or whatever else it is. That's not the word. Uh, the, the translation of that word, I don't know how she would translate it, but let me give you a, a word picture of what it means to love one another earnestly. What does this word earnestly mean? It means to, to stretch your muscle to the max. It's a, it's a physiological term, an athletic term. It's, it's to stretch a muscle to the limit of its capacity. It's the idea of pushing until there's nothing left in reserve. Push it that hard. Now you think about that, whether it's in an academic, or I mean, an athletic setting, or, or any other kind of setting. Many of us have been there. We pushed it, and we had just were flat wrung out. There's no more pushing of our muscles. And as you get older, that, that comes a lot quicker, doesn't it? Man, that cup of coffee was heavy this morning. I better rest the rest of the day. But, but that's the idea of this word. We're, we're to love one another to the fullest extent that we're able to love. We need to push ourselves in our love for one another. I'm reminded of, of Mark 13, 20. I'm sorry, 1230, where uh, Jesus is, is speaking and, he, and he's talking about the great commandment. You remember the great commandment? Mark records it like this. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind, and then listen, with all your strength. The idea here is you're pushing the limits. And then he goes on to say the second is likened to it. What is it? Love your neighbors yourself. And so when we love our neighbors, the command from Jesus Christ, the teaching from Jesus, is that we are to push ourselves to the limit as we love one another. Peter says this is the kind of love that we're to demonstrate. You're to love to limit your capacity. Whatever it costs you in time, whatever it costs you in energy, whatever it costs you in, in money, whatever it costs you in weariness, whatever it costs you, period, you're to love to the limit. And it's to come from the heart. That, that's the love that Peter envisions. It's not that, you know, when we think of love in a church, a lot of times we think of that warm and cozy love you have around the coffee pot, right? I really like that. I can love a lot of people around the pot of coffee, just to let you know. Especially good coffee. Um, I'll keep my opinions about who has good coffee to myself. I don't want to alienate half the congregation here. But that brings us to a question. That's the command. Love and stretch your love for one another. But that brings a, a natural question 
And it's a question that children have a tendency to ask. And the question is, why? Why should I take the time or the effort to love another believer earnestly? And the answer to that question is is very instructive. Peter gives two reasons. The first one that we should love one another earnestly is because we have been set apart. Look at verse number 22 one more time. Everybody look there. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. There's the... There's, he's building his reasons. His reasons. He says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now, there's three points he makes here. All of them are important, and I want to build them. It's like building blocks. Ready? He says, first of all, he says, having purified your souls. That, that verb there is hagidzo, and it's translated purified, but a lot of times in the New Testament, that verb is translated as um, a holy one, okay? It's 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 set apart. Maybe would be a better term for it. Set apart. It, it and the word the the at the noun or adjectival variation of that word is the word that's talking about a ceremonial washing. The a I just about went back to my Midwestern roots. If you're from Illinois, you say wash. But uh, <clears throat> anybody know what I'm talking about? So okay, wash. I got made fun of in college for several of my Midwestern things. And it was always from all those mean people on the up and down the eastern seaboard. But um, <laughs> especially in Boston. I don't know what it is about people in Boston and Hartford. But um, uh, maybe it's just because they were my friends. But it, it describes having purified. That, that word having purified describes the ceremonial washing that one would have before they went into the temple in the Old Testament time, or the priest, the ceremonial washing of the priest before he would go into the Holy of Holies. Now think about it. Remember what had to happen. In order for a priest to go into the holy place and the high priest to go into the Holy of Holies, they had to wash themselves top to bottom, purify themselves. It's a, it's a symbolic purification of sin. And so it's, it's that kind of a term. As a matter of fact, in, in Acts twenty. 1 verse 26, then Paul took men the next day and he purified himself along with them and went into the temple. Now, when you purify yourself, you're not purifying yourself to go work in the field. You're not purifying yourself to go cook supper. You're purifying yourself. You're setting yourself apart to go worship God. And so he's saying, having purified your souls, set up, you're setting yourself apart to God. You're being holy. What does He do? By what? What are we being purified by? Your obedience to the truth. Obedience to the truth. Now, is, is Peter teaching work salvation here? Purify yourself by obedience to the truth. Is it something that we can do? Well, very interestingly enough, I'll show you in, the, in one verse, but there's many verses in the Old Testament. The Bible talks about obeying the truth. It's in that that truth is the gospel message, uh, obedience to the gospel message. What is the gospel message? It's repent and believe Romans fifteen eighteen. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. Now, he's not saying here 
that you can you're saved through your actions. Obedience to the truth. What was the message of John the Baptist? What was the message of Jesus? What was the message of the apostles? Repent and believe. That's obedience to that message, right? Jesus died on the cross, rose again the third day to purify us from our sins. And so we repent of our sins and we believe. And so when Peter says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, he's speaking of salvation. So we're, we're purified by our salvation. And then what are we purified for? The last component is this, for a brotherly love. For a brotherly love. That word literally is Philadelphia. Philadelphia. For a sincere brotherly love. So put all of this together. Peter is saying in a church context, we are saved in order to love one another. That's his first reason. Isn't that incredible to think? I'm I'm not saved, so I get a a, a ticket to heaven, a one-way ticket to heaven. I'm not saved so that I can enjoy eternal bliss with God forever. That, That is part of it. But the application for right here, right now, is that I'm saved in order to love the brothers. Philadelphia, brotherly love, a sincere brotherly love. I want to ask you this question. Do you know anyone that has a real need in the church? Who do you know that's struggling financially? Who do do you know that's struggling spiritually in this church? Who do you know who's struggling in their marriage? Who do you know that's struggling in any number of, of ways or in many ways? Who do you know that's a widow in need? Who do you know that's uh, uh, struggling with foster, uh, fostering children, trying to raise children all alone? Who do you know that's an orphan? Or um, who do you know that's struggling in a tragedy that's happened in their life? Who do you know that's facing the death of a spouse? Who do you know that's in an illness in a hospital or in a rest home? Who do you know that's in sin? Who do you know that's lonely? I said many things. I'm probably covering up in your mind things that maybe you thought of. But ask yourself this question. Who do I know that has a real need? And what am I doing about it? Do you think that in this fellowship, when you find out somebody has a need, that God just put it there so you can pray about it? In the James, it says, what's, what's kind of faith is it? It just says, be warned and be filled. That's not the kind of faith that we have. We have the faith that's, that's brotherly love. Who do I know that has a real spiritual need and they're just not victorious in their spiritual life? Who do I know that has a financial need, struggling emotionally with a wayward teenager? Who do I know that's married to an alcoholic or struggling in loneliness? Or who do I know that's ill? Who do I know that has a spouse that's facing death? Lord, direct me to those people and give me wisdom to love them and care for them. We're saved into a community, you see? So we're saved. Our salvation in this earth, one of the primary reasons that we're saved and put into a fellowship is so that we can love one another earnestly. I don't have time to unpack this, but let me just briefly say, in John 17, Jesus said that's our evangelism. You ever seen that? He says that people will know that we're sons of God by our love for one another. And so the way, one of the ways that you can 
witness to the people around you is to love one another well. You walk out of here, you complain about the the pastor's sermon being too long, the music being too loud, or or whatever else uh, to to people outside the church. That's not showing brotherly love, and, and it's not being a good testimony. So, so these are these are things that we need to think about as we think about brotherly love. So, verse 22, let's recap. We're going to move on to verse number 23. We're to love one another fervently or to the limit because we have been set apart for sincere brotherly love. Now, verse 23 gives us a second reason. Second why. Why are we to love one another? We're to love one another earnestly because that's the essence of the new eternal life that we have. So let's think about this for just a minute. When I use the word essence, what am I talking about? What is the essence of a dog? (laughs) Well, they love fire hydrants. They bark. They'll eat any kind of food. They'll even eat vegetables if they see you eat them. That's better than your kids, right? I mean, what makes a dog a dog? And why, why, what makes a cat a cat? I mean, they have four legs and a tail, just like a dog. What's the essence essence of catness? Can I use that term? Is that okay? <laughs> so you see, when I say love is the essence of your new eternal nature, I'm saying this this is, becomes who you are. This is an essence of of Christianity, and that that's the argument that Peter makes. Look at what he says in verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. So when you get saved, there's new life. There's a new spiritual energy that's flowing through you. And because God is a God of love, you will have that love inside you. This is an evidence of salvation. If you love the brothers, you are a believer. John says that in his, in his uh, gospel. He says again in his epistles, First John. And it's just the essence of um, somebody who is a believer. I wish I had time to really unpack this for you. But this is an amazing truth. We've been born again through the living and abiding Word of God. This is so exciting. We... we, we have been given life through that word. It's it's the the word is living. It's not like human words because it has the power to bring new life. This new life is abiding, meaning it's permanent. God gives you new life that never fades, fails or dies. The implication for us is enormous. Let me give you just one implication. Well, maybe I'll give you two. One implication of this new life that we have in Jesus Christ is that evangelism does not depend upon us. It's not your clever presentation. It's not your winning personality. It's not that you say the right words in the right combination. Your evangelism depends upon one thing and one thing only, the living and abiding Word of God. And it's when you impart that Word of God to people that God uses that Word to impart life. Isn't that a blessing? Uh, That is, I can remember as a young Christian in my early 20s, witnessing to people, and I would just replay the whole thing in my head, say, oh man, I wish I'd said this, or I forgot to say that, or I forgot this. You ever done that? Can I tell you, when you realize that what you do is just 
present the Word of God and then you live the Word of God in the way you love other people, that's so refreshing. God does all the heavy lifting. It's, it's just an amazing implication of, of evangelism. How much relief does this give you? It's, it was so freeing for me to, to, to understand that. It's not your beautifully constructed argument that brings life or change people or convince people. It's God's Word. And this is a powerful reason to love. You have been born again of imperishable seed. We are to love other Christians because we now share in the same eternal fellowship. We are born again into a fellowship that is eternal and we can't afford to be self-centered or individualistic because our salvation incurs in the context of fellowship. And this fellowship must deepen and remain for all of eternity. So this is what I want you to do. I want you to look around you. Look around. If you're stuck with these people for all of eternity. <laughs> and they're stuck with you, so you better shape up. To me, this is the most powerful argument that Peter gives. Isn't it? You are eternally bound to one another in fellowship. You're born of eternal seed. And, and you're going to go to heaven together. You're going to see each other for the next eternity. I'm going to wake up and see Mike Solarchik. <laughs> you know, I, I was thinking about this and I thought, man... 12 years, God called me to love Packers fans. I just barely endured it. Now i got to love Redskins fans. <laughs> Lord, it's too heavy cross to bear. <laughs> Obeying the Bible is hard. But I want to go to verse number 24. I, I want you to look at 24 and 25. Now, have you ever been reading the Bible? And, and you read an argument. And you think, why on earth is this, is, is this in the Bible? And 24 and 25 is very easy for people to do that. You look at verses 24 and 25. He's arguing about um, loving one another earnestly. And then all of a sudden, right in the middle of it, he sticks a quote from Isaiah 40. And you're scratching your head saying, so why did he stick this here? I want to bless you by, by explaining what's going on here. Let's read 24 and 25 together. This is a quote from Isaiah 40. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Now, what is Peter doing here? Peter is simply intensifying the assertion that God's word is permanent. And he's using an Old Testament quote to do it. All flesh is like grass. All flesh means mankind, the animal kingdom. It's all like grass. All its glory. Now, so follow the, the thought, the flow of thought here. All its glory is like the flower of grass. You look at a field, it's grass. And what, what, what is the glory of that grass? Well, once in a while, in the middle of that grass, a flower rises up out of the grass. And that's the glory. That's the beauty of the grass. And he's referring to the typical pastoral scene of beautiful grass. Uh, and rising out of it, the, the beautiful wildflowers. And there is the common grass and the uncommon flower. There's the plain that's the grass, the spectacular that's the flower. And look what he says about all of this and all of its beauty. He says that the grass withers and the flower falls, it fades, it crumbles, and it's 
It dies. Now this would be very vivid to people in Palestine, in Israel, because of their experience every year to a, a tremendous degree. If you go over there right now, the hills are green during the rainy season. First time I ever went to Israel was uh, last two weeks in May. It was blistering hot, 105, 110 at the Dead Sea. Sea Galley was in the 90s. All the hills were brown and everything. And Arya would tell us in the wintertime, these hills are green. And I would look at the hills. There's not even, there's not even like brown grass. It was just dirt. I'm thinking, what comes out of that? And then three, four years ago, I got to go in January or February, something like that, during the rainy season, and it's all green. And the flowers are blooming. These, and the flowers, they might just be really short, but there's flowers and there's grass. And then the dry season hits in, in late March and April, and it just dries up. And by May, there's no grass to be seen anywhere. And, and the, the, the hearers, of, of Peter's hearers, would understand that completely. And it doesn't matter if it's common or spectacular. Flowers or grass, it fades. Now, everyone, please listen. You listening? This is so important that you understand this. You think of the best of flesh. The best of man's life. The best of humankind. Beauty. The most beautiful human beings. The healthiest human beings. The strongest. The most honored human beings. The most articulate human beings. The wisest. The most profound and the most gifted Think of the flower of man, art, music, education, culture, architecture, the genius of man, the greatness of man, and that's the flower. And it dies like the common man, like the rest of the commoners. In the grave, the prince and the pauper lay side by side. Everything of all flesh dies. Generations come and generations go. And and like the leaves of each successive year, they die and decay. And some men, if some men may be momentarily conspicuous and and standing out among all the multitudes, if some men may momentarily be distinguished by rank or riches or learning or status or great deeds or triumphs or successes, all of these glories are no greater than than grass. And though some men's lives be it rare, flower, delicate, and gorgeous, shining in brightness among the common grass, it has no permanence. There's no longer lease on life. It drops, it withers, it fades, it fails. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, dust. The, ash, the dust of Caesar's body is no more spectacular than the dust of the common person's body. And that's what Peter is trying to get us to see. These, these Christians in the first century, Rome was at its apex. Beautiful Roman Empire. If you've been to Greece, you've been to Italy, you've been to Israel, you've been around where the Roman Empire was, spectacular buildings. And you look at that and you think to yourself, I would love to have seen this in all its glory 2,000 years ago, right? And that's what they're seeing. And so today, we look and we see the, the glories of, of mankind now, whether it's in the city, the glories of our genius, the glories of, of our ability to entertain. And we, we've made heroes out of these people. And, and when they die, and when this eventually America is going to be a footnote in history, you realize that. 
With all of our might and power, we're going to be a footnote. And that is what we need to remember. All of this will fade. All of this will fail. All of this will die. And so Peter says, quoting from Isaiah, you've been born, you're not born of that kind of seed. And this is the encouraging part. That's not you. Your glory will last forever. Isn't that what the Bible says? We, we will be glorified as Jesus is glorified. Ours is permanent. Mike Solarczyk, I picked on him just a second ago. He's going to be more glorious in heaven than he is now. And he's glorious now, isn't he? The glory of heaven. His, he, he's a, a great musician and he's going to be even better in heaven. I just want to be able to sing. That's all I want. If I can sing in heaven, I'll be great. But the glory of heaven is eternal. It's magnificent. We, dear friends, either grass or flowers in this life, we will never die. We will never fade. And it's this abiding Word that He says, which was preached to you. It was a truth that evangelized you. That unchanging Word. And this is so. This is a motive that causes us to earnestly love one another. And so you say, okay, well, I'm supposed to love one another. But how? How do I love another person? Well, I'm glad you asked. The next three verses lay it out for us. Look at verse number 1 of chapter 2. So, now this is our connector word, or maybe your version says, therefore, this is connecting this truth that, that uh, he just got done expounding. So, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. In order to love one another, first of all, we must put off the sins that destroy fellowship. Now the picture here is, is the, the, the removing of a garment. Uh, he says, put off. It's, it's taking a garment off and putting another one on. Paul uses it all the time. What are these words, these five words? Well, there's malice. Malice is evil or wickedness. It's general evil. If you have no appetite for the Word of God, or maybe you're self-sufficient and your prayer life is cold, or maybe your life is is crowded with sin, then then malice could be on its way, this general evil. Deceit. It's the word cunning. This is deceitfulness towards others. This is being two-faced. Are you two-faced? It's it, that's the word that he's talking about here. How about hypocrisy, phoniness? It's being somebody you're not. Anything in your life that's a fabrication, a mask, that's phoniness. Any kind of covered up, anything that's not real or genuine, uh, envy, envy, desire for what others have. You want what they have. You you have resent and maybe you have resentment a little bit, but maybe not. Maybe you just want it, uh, whatever their possessions. This leads to a grudge and bitterness. Sometimes it leads to hatred and conflict and then slander, disparaging speech about someone else. Now, here's something about slander that many people misunderstand. Slander can be either true or untrue. Slander doesn't have to be untrue. Slander can be very true. You know, it can be it can be anything. You can you can pick on anybody in a in the negative light. I didn't like the, the the Sunday school teacher's lesson today. It was really boring or 
or I felt like they could have done a lot better. And you start talking to somebody else about their lesson and critiquing it. Guess what? That's slander, whether it's true or not. Um, and, and, and so we have to be very careful about the way that we speak about other people. Now, what's wrong with all these things? What's wrong with them is that they destroy fellowship. These, do any of these things help draw a group of people close together? If, if, if I'm going I'm, I'm to pick on Mike one more time. Sorry, Mike, you're just right in front of me, and it's just an easy time. If I, if I helping my fellowship with him, if I say, man, did you see you know, Mike today when he was singing? He's just spitting all over the place. I don't know if you do or not, but, but you, know, you start talking, well, I'm not going to sit on the front row anymore because um, I'm not doing anything to help love Mike when I do that, am I? By the way, that, that's not why I sit over there. But uh, I could tell you something really gross, but I won't. I'm going to I need to keep moving or else I'm going to wish that I had not. So anyway, these things destroy fellowship, you see. So so one thing that helps you love another person is to put these things off. But there's something that helps you love them more. And it's what you put on. And it's in the next verse. It's a command. Let's look at ver- uh, what does it say? Like newborn infants desire the pure spiritual milk. Now, what do babies want? They want milk. That's They want milk. And when they want milk, you're going to know that they want milk. They, they were born desiring milk. They crave it. You don't have to tell a baby, drink your milk. Do you? They crave that milk, and and um, they just they just do it. And so that's another evidence of salvation, by the way. And that's the other command where it says, "Long for the sincere spiritual milk." The milk that that's the other command, and that's an evidence of salvation. Both of these things, love one another's command, and we we are implanted with love. It's an evidence of salvation. Longing for God's word is implanted in us at salvation, and it's also an evidence of salvation. It's something that we're supposed to work on. So we're, God puts it in our hearts to crave His Word. And since it's command, it means that, that we need to be intentional about our consumption of the truth. So how does ingesting God's Word increase our love? How does that happen? Isn't that kind of weird? So if, if, um, if I'm ingesting God's Word, I'm going to love Mike more. Right? Well, what is the result of being in God's Word is that we become more like Jesus Christ. When you put off sin, was, was Christ sinful? No. So you put off sin and you drink in the milk of God's Word, you become more like Jesus Christ. And Christ is a God of love. And I want to I close with a kind of an extended illustration in your bulletins is an insert and it's called heaven is a world of love it's an excerpt by jonathan edwards in one of his sermons so pull that out now if you know anything about jonathan edwards most of you know that he was the 18th century colonial preacher who preached a sermon sinners in the hands of the angry god right that's what he's famous for we we think of him as the angry puritan standing in the pulpit but can I tell you, if you read Jonathan Edwards' works, what you're going to find out is the bulk of his meditations were on the wonder of God and the wonder of heaven. And his meditation 
on on heaven being a world of love has been such a blessing to me. I wanted to share it with you. He he is talking about heaven. And and he wrote in here, he said that he, talking about God, is an infinite fountain of love. Since he is an all-sufficient being, it follows that he is full and overflowing in an inexhaustible fountain of love. Since he is unchangeable and eternal being, he is an unchangeable and eternal source of love. There, even in heaven, dwells that God from whom every stream of holy love, yea, every drop that that ever was, it comes forth. Isn't that beautiful? And that's just God in general. And then he unpacks it by talking about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And when he's talking about the Son, he says, there dwells Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the Prince of Peace of love, who so loved the world that He shed His blood and poured out His soul unto death for it. And there dwells the Mediator by whom God's love is expressed to the saints, by whom the fruits of it have been purchased and through whom they are communicated and through whom love is imparted to the hearts of all the church The Bible is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And he says it's through Jesus Christ that love is imparted in our heart. You see how that works? He's meditating on love. He doesn't he doesn't stop there. He follows with this conclusion there in heaven, this fountain of love, this eternal three in one is set open without any obstacle to hinder access to it. There, this glorious God is manifested and shines forth in full glory in beams of love. There, the fountain overflows in streams and rivers of love and delight. Don't you want to go there? Streams and rivers of love and delight. And he says, enough for all to drink. We can all drink of the fountain of love in heaven. And and he says, enough for all to drink at, to swim in. Yea, so as to overflow the world as it were a deluge of love. He's describing heaven. And he says the essence of love is in heaven. And the essence of love is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so, dear Christian, listen. Do you want to love one another? Do you want to obey God in in your love? Then meditate on Scriptures. Because that's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jonathan Edwards had this holy imagination when he talk, when the Bible talks about God and His love and what heaven is like, he just uses imagination to think about the love and what it means to swim and drink in love. And it made him a more loving person. And it will make you a more loving person when you meditate on our great Savior, Jesus Christ, and God the Father and what is prepared for us in heaven. Remember, we are born again, not of corruptible seed, but of an imperishable seed that lives and, and, and lives forever and it's glorious forever. Remember that we were born again for a brotherly love. And so that's the reason why we should love. And how do we love? We put off those sins that destroy fellowship and we long and we drink in the Word of God. Don't you want to glorify God that way? As I said at the beginning of the sermon, this is a loving fellowship. I'm so excited to be a part of this fellowship. But I know that we can do better. I don't know how. I don't know in what way. But the Holy Spirit right now is probably laying on your heart ways. You know, I could probably show love this way or I could show love that way. Just Those aren't coincidences. Just do it. I, I can't wait to get to heaven 
when I read stuff like this, just the holy imagination of somebody who meditated on God and His love and the Father. Lord, I thank You for this fellowship. I thank You for the the writing of Peter. And, and I thank You for Scripture. And Lord, I plead with You that You will make me a more loving person. Lord, I have so far to go. I'm selfish. I'm self-centered. I don't think of others first. And I, I ask, Lord, that You'll help me to do that. But Lord, I pray that You'll do that with all of our church. As loving as we are, there's always that ingrained selfishness that all of us were born with. There's that ingrained self-centeredness to take care of ourselves to the neglect of others. And Lord, I pray that every day we will strive, we will earnestly stretch ourselves in love for one another. Why? Because of our great salvation. In His name we pray. Amen.